Good morning, church. It's good to see here, see everybody out this morning and to be in the midst of God's people and to be able to praise and sing worship to Him and, and now to hear from His Word. Thank you for being here. Um, today we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, so if you'd like to read out of your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 19 through 25 this morning. I'm going to have the verses up on the screen, actually, so if you just want to follow me, that's fine as well. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, the title of the sermon this morning is, is The Anchor You Can Trust In. All right, let's begin by reading verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. So we have here in this passage of Scripture that we read this morning, three imperatives. Three imperatives is really a, a, a employed in, in the, the New Testament is written in the Greek, and it's a, it's a verb mood that uh, has a very strong connotation to it. And they're actually commands. So anytime you see an imperative, it's the Bible, the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament employ this to tell us these are the things that we are supposed to do. These are exhortations. These are commands. And in this passage of Scripture here this morning, we have three clear imperatives. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. And there in verse 22. The second one, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23. And then the third one, let us consider one another, begins with in verse 24. Three things that the scriptures are telling us to do. And this is actually a very good passage of scripture to, to um, share with you guys something that I've learned that is just a great um, help to me. And that is the fact that, well, maybe you're like, maybe you're like me. I, I'm, I tend to be a legalist. I was raised to, to, if there was a list of things to do, that I was trained to do them. And just go and do them and check off the, start checking off the box, right? Start checking off that box of things to do, the things that are, I'm supposed to do as a, someone that wants to follow God and wants to please God. These are the things I'm supposed to do. The problem with that is, is um, my motivations were wrong. They're all wrong. And, and in the New Testament, we do have these imperatives, but there's a, another key and crucial thing that we always need to, to pay attention to, attention to in the verb moods. And that's the indicative verb move verb mood and the indicative verb move is really our anchor who's been rock climbing anyone out here this morning okay we have a few people that have been rock climbing now i kind of guy like me likes to go to the top and just go down not fight gravity but rock climbing the easiest way to do that and the most safest way to do that is go to the top of the of the run that you're going to do and you're going to anchor yourself right to the rope that you're going to be climbing up so when you get up there, do you want to find like a, just kind of like a little teeny rock or maybe just a little tiny shrub? No, you're going to be looking for the largest, the biggest rock that you can find up at the top of that run to anchor yourself in, right? 
And that's the anchor. So as you're climbing, as you're making those strenuous leaps and, and climbs up that cliff face, right? If you slip and fall, you want whatever's anchoring you to catch you. And the indicatives in Scripture are our anchor. It is what, as this verb mood, as it says in the New Testament, the indicative verb mood is commonly employed to denote what God has done, is doing, or will do. And folks, that's our anchor. It is what God has done. And we never should divorce the indicative with the imperative. We should never set out to do what we're supposed to do, the imperatives, without first considering what God has done. It's always key, and they're always really close to each other. Anytime you see commands in the New Testament specifically, um, and especially in Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul's writings, every time you see a command to do something, there's an indicative of what God has done right around there. And so what I have to do, because I'm a legalist, you know what legalists are, right? We, we start checking off that box, and then um, we kind of feel bad that we're not making all the check boxes. And so we start looking around at other people and going, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person, right? I'm, at least I'm doing a little better than that person. And then the people that are doing better than me, well, I just call them legalists, right? So that's what, legalists, that's what I like to do. That's my natural inclination to do. And so what I have to do is every time I see a command in Scripture, the New Testament commands us to do things in the body of Christ. But I have to base those, those things that I'm, I'm going to do off of what God has done. So I have to go and I have to find the indicative. I have to find first what God has done and see what God has done for me so that I can then do the imperative. It is an expression of worship when I do the imperatives based off of what God has done in the indicative. Okay? Is everyone following so far? I know you probably didn't come for an English class this morning, but um, it's, it's just very important. So what's the indicative given to us in the Hebrews in this passage of Scripture? I've already covered the three imperatives. And it's there, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. This word, therefore, right there, that's a, that's, he's concluding something. That's called a conclusive conjunction. And what they're saying is, is, He's writing and he's, he's concluding everything that he's wrote thus far. We're in chapter 10, so he's written a lot. Okay? He says, because of what I've written to you so far, we need to embrace this idea. So these are, this is a conclusive summary of what he's written so far. And what has he said? He said that Jesus, they're having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. This is written to a group of people, the Hebrews, right? The Jewish, some Jewish people that had been living the Old Testament way, had had the temple sacrifices and trying to appease God and, and doing those things. And they had been encountered by someone of the new and living way, the, the new way, uh, the new, uh, an apostle or a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they shared with them that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah and that we, they were to turn from the Old Testament way the temple sacrifices and the temple ordinances and all that stuff, and followed, turned and followed Jesus because Jesus is far superior. So they, we, they did that. They turned from the Old Testament way to Jesus, the New Testament way. And so uh, as you read the book, uh, this book of Hebrews, this epistle written to these, this group of people, you'll see that 
they began to suffer persecution because of their choice to follow Jesus instead of the old traditions of men and the old tradition of the Old Testament. They began to suffer uh, persecution, and some of them were beginning to wonder if they might not change their mind and, and stop following Jesus and just return back to the old way. And so this letter, this book of Hebrews, was written to that group of people that were suffering persecution because of their belief in Jesus and because some were beginning to question whether or not they made the right decision. This, book was, this letter was written to them in order to persuade them that indeed following Jesus was far superior than the old way. And as New Testament saints, we have the unbelievable blessing of having the complete revealed will of God in the Bible. And so we know, we can now look back, and we can see that the Old Testament, what started in the tabernacle out in the desert, back in the days of Moses, and then later on into the temple in Jerusalem Mount, um, all that stuff was designed for because they didn't have the completed revealed will, right, of Scripture. That's right. So God gave them these, these ordinances and these laws and these sacrifices and the temple and everything that the temple uh, talked about was actually, it's called a type. It's a forerunner. It's a shadow of the thing to come. And that shadow of the thing to come, the thing that was to come, was Christ. Jesus Christ was the final and complete and perfect uh, um, uh, expression of God's love for mankind. And the temple and all the ordinances and all the works that were in that temple in the Old Testament times was designed to point uh, people to that coming Messiah that would one day fulfill everything. And so a lot of people would say, well, we don't need to even worry about the Old Testament. Right? It's back in the day. and it doesn't... Actually, if you have a good grasp on the Old Testament, it gives you, provides you a much firmer foundation for your belief in the New Testament. Right, and this is just a small example of that. And if you don't know a lot about the temple and how it was, what it was designed for and what all the different things were designed to do and point towards Christ, well, guess what? You're in luck. Because I heard our pastor is uh, getting ready to give us a sermon series on uh, the temple and all that it stood for and all that stuff coming here in a few weeks. So it's a, a great thing to grab hold of. And it's, uh, what it does is it helps us understand the, the blessing that we have as a New Testament believer. Right? Because what this is referring to here is the temple. Specifically, there's, a, there's the outside of the temple, then you have the temple walls inside the grounds, then you have a place called the holy place, right? And that's where they burned the incense and they had the showbread and stuff. But then there was this thick veil, this thick curtain that was spread across, four inches thick, supposed to be really thick and very tall. And uh, behind that curtain was the holiest of holies, it's called. And it's where the tabard, or the uh, um, Ark of the Covenant was, right? And that was designed to show the people that that's where that was. Uh, it was meant to express where God existed, where God dwelt. Okay, and the whole meaning because of the, behind that veil was to show people that God's presence was cut off from them. That curtain was blocking people from having a close relationship with God. Right, and the reason because of the, the reason for that being cut off from God's presence was because of our sin, and so God was showing them, "Your presence is cut off from me. Something is veiling our relationship. I created you for relationship. I created you for community with me, and something is prohibiting that, and it's our sin. And so that was that temple and that that veil and that holy of holies was that way God showed them that their presence was cut off every year." 
God told the high priest, there was a high priest in the Aaronic priesthood, and he was one job once a year, it was called the Day of Atonement. He would come in and he would first offer a blood sacrifice for himself, right? To, cleanse, to be a sacrifice or an offering for his sins. And then he would go behind the curtain once a year and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And he would, uh, as, a, as an expression of uh, uh, offering for the people's sins. Okay, and they had to do that once a year, every year. And it was, so it was temporary. We can see that, right? It wasn't just one time, and you were good for 20 years. It was year after year after year. The, holy, the high priest had to go in and offer that sacrifice. And so this writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to show them that Christ and the New Testament is far superior than that old way, right? And so look what he says here. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, no more blood and goats, a blood of goats or anything like that, by a new and living way, right? All those dead animals could not pay for sin, our sin, right? It was temporary, but it was by a new and living way. Our sacrifice, Jesus Christ on the cross, right? Died on that cross that day. But praise God, he rose again three days later. Did he not? He's the new and living way. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. That veil that was separating us from God and dwelling with God and having communion with God. Guess what? That, uh, Matthew chapter 7 talks about it. Christ, on that, when he was on the cross, he gave up his spirit and cried out. And what happened to the veil at the temple at the very same, same moment in Jerusalem? The veil was torn from top to bottom. God signifying the way into the Holy of Holies is now through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God led us. So that's the indicative, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but he's our high priest. He is forever, as Hebrews chapter 7, 25 says, he is also able to save though to the uttermost, not just a little bit, Right? to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This great and wonderful gift of salvation that God has given us is not only just this one time at the cross that he died for our sins. Um, tomorrow when I go out and I get angry or the next time I sin, guess what? I have a high priest at the right hand of God who's forever making intercession for me. All those who believe, who come to him through, come to God through him, have a great high priest, not once a year, but who's forever at the right hand of God, making intercession for them. That's the indicative. That's what we look to. That's what we see as God doing this amazing thing for us. And then, as we dwell on that, as we uh, understand that, as we contemplate that, we begin to strike out and do those imperatives, those commands, as an act of worship as an act of appreciation, an expression of uh, appreciation for what God has done for us, as our Jesus has done for us, as our great high priest. So, we now know the indicative, right? Jesus is our high priest. So, we can now do the imperative. So, let's look at the imperatives real quick. The first one, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And I think we've already touched on that. Right? We have the ability as New Testament believers to draw near, to come before the throne of grace anytime we want. Every time we close our eyes in an 
attitude of prayer and speak, begin to cry out, Father, right? We are drawing near to the throne of grace. The Old Testament saint was always cut off. We had this amazing blessing of being able to draw near to our Creator anytime we want. And as we contemplate that and see what a blessing that is, our, this true heart, true means a, a genuine. We, have, we come before Him with a genuine heart. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing opportunity to be able to come in the Holy of Holies, into your presence anytime I desire, because of what Jesus Christ is doing as our High Priest. Full assurance of faith, right? We can't see that happening. God deals with us in the matter of faith at this moment, this time of juncture. One day it'll all be a reality and we'll be able to see physically, but right now this is where we dwell, by faith. God has revealed this to us. And it's by faith we acknowledge these things and act on them. And then the rest of this is just a contrasting view of the old covenant versus the new. Remember the writer's trying to convince these people that persecuting, being persecuted for Jesus is actually better and returning back, because the New Testament, the way of Jesus, is far superior. So he says, having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he's referring back to the things that were done in the Old Testament tabernacle, in the Old Testament temple. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, remember it said, therefore it was concluding what he'd already written? So we're going back and we're seeing some of the things that the writer of Hebrews talked about. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. See, Christ was the tabernacle. Christ was the temple. He is the true temple. It's not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained excuse me, eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve your living God. So we see the things that are underlined were the things that he had mentioned there back in verse 22. Okay, so he's just summarizing what he's already written. He's trying to evoke those strong emotions they had for those things that they used to do at the temple. And saying, no more. No longer is it what you do with your hands at the temple. It's what you think and do about Jesus, your high priest. Are you going to let him forever and eternally be your high priest? Or do you want to return to trying to do it yourself and doing it your own way? Right? So that video that we, talked, that we saw at the beginning of this message, one of them was fix your thoughts on Jesus. No more is it what we do. It's what we think about Jesus. What we ponder about our great high priest. Do we approach him, approach his throne um, with a genuine heart, with full assurance of faith? That's the work of the New Testament saint. Right? Next one. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So this next command, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope We can have hope because our faith is in Jesus Christ, the anchor of our soul. Again, this is a concluding summary of what he's already written, so we'll go back. We find that in Hebrews chapter 6. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, that's unchangeableness, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for our refuge to lay hold of, of the hope set before us. This hope we have 
as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence, again, the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow, this thing's packed, <laughs> right? But um, first and foremost, the, uh, the forerunner. So this is, this is amazing imagery here. Uh, they had ships back in the day, right? And the ships had anchors, and those anchors were large rocks, most of them, right? And they'd have a hole through the, through the middle of it, and that's what they would use as anchors. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to give us this imagery, this visible picture, uh, word picture of what's going on here. So Christ is our hope. We have an anchor for the soul. He is both sure and steadfast. He is an anchor that cannot be moved. He is uh, the forerunner, where the forerunners entered for us, right? Christ, Christ has gone in to the Holy of Holies. He's opened the veil for us. He's the forerunner. And that's another imagery of, 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 of anchoring a ship. In the olden, olden days, they would be out, and all of a sudden storms would just come up out of nowhere. And so they'd all start heading for the, the nearest island they could find. And they would try to get behind the island to protect themselves from all the wind and the storm before they got, you know, were sank. And sometimes they would swing around the island, and there would be like a sandbar or a, um, a bed of coral or something like that. It was low tide. And they knew that if they didn't get up a little higher... When high tide came, they would be swept into the storm. So they were kind of stuck because it was low tide. They, their big ship with their big uh, bow or whatever, right, um, couldn't get past the sand anchor, the, the sandbar. So what they had was a small little boat they would lower it called the forerunner. And the forerunner would go down and they would anchor, they would lower the anchor into that boat and that boat would row that anchor across that sandbar or that coral. And then they would set that anchor where they needed to be when they knew when high tide would come. They'd be anchored, sure and steadfast. And so he's given us this imagery. Christ went before us. He's done it for us, right? All we have to do is embrace that and uh, fix our eyes and our thoughts upon him and our hopes upon him as well, right? He's our forerunner. After the order of of Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek was a king of Salem in in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament refers to him as having no beginning or no end, right? So the writer of Hebrews is invoking that same privilege to Jesus Christ because all of Revelation reveals to us that Jesus Christ is without beginning or without end. He's the God of very God, the God in flesh, right? So he's giving that, uh, trying to show them, evoke that, uh, their Old Testament beliefs and show them how Jesus fulfills that, all right? So why is Jesus sure and steadfast? Well, the scripture goes on to say, because he is, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Hebrews chapter 11, if you jump forward from where we're at here in chapter 10, has this great, what's called the hall, the chapter of faith, has this long list of a lot of people who exercised a lot of faith, and they got their names written in the Bible forever for it. And I have to admit to you, when I first came across that, and I started to go, man, look at these people. They're amazing. They have this great amount of faith. They're just, I mean, so much faith that they were mentioned in the, the, the forever in the Bible. And as I began to learn more and more about those particular people that are found in that list, you know what? They have weaknesses, too. They have failures, too, just like me. They uh, have doubts sometimes, just like me, right? So what was the main thing that they had in common? 
It was who they placed their faith in. Right? Jesus Christ is an anchor we can trust in. They placed their faith in God and His promises. And so we must as well. Hebrews chapter 12 um, talks about this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses are the, all those people back in chapter 11, surrounded by those cloud of witnesses that, yes, God is indeed faithful. I place my faith in Him. And He who promises faithful. So we look at them and go, we can trust in God as well. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us consider one another. So we now are working this out, working out our love for Jesus as we consider Jesus as our great high priest, as we, as we learn to, to behold him and um, fix our eyes upon him and our thoughts upon him. That should naturally begin to work our love for Jesus out into, into our community, those people around us, right? And the author of Hebrews is specifically talking about the group, the body of believers, right? The assembled church, and so we can apply this to ourselves today as well. Jesus Christ is also our great high priest. And as we consider him and, and look to him, we must also begin to work our love for what Jesus has done for us as an expression of what he's done for us. We uh, seek to do, follow these commands. And this command is, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So as we look to Jesus, the first two are about our relationship with Jesus. Now it begins to work on our horizontal relationship with those around us. All right? So we're supposed to stir up one another for love and good works. Love. This word agape, I think most people, everyone knows the Greek word agape for love, right? It's not the typical kind of love we uh, define today. This love is a service, a love of service and sacrifice. And it's modeled by Jesus Christ. Could you imagine being the creator of all things? And heir of all things, and king of kings, and lord of lords, and then having your disciples sit down and washing their feet. You washing their feet. That's what Jesus did. That's an expression of agape love. That's the type of love that we are supposed to have to one another. And Paul, in this uh, 1 Corinthians 13, is, uh, it's very convicting for me, honestly. Right? He, he talks about the importance of love. In expressing our in our outward expression of what we're doing, though I speak with the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my good to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love. That prophets mean nothing. We just stir up, consider one another, and we're to stir up one another for love and good works. And the only way we can do that is be around one another. Good works, right? We, I've had lots of discussion about good works, right? James, in the book of James, James says, "Faith without works is dead," and I would totally agree with him, right? But why? Because we're just supposed to do. We're just supposed to do the imperatives. No. It's because of what God has done. This is in Titus chapter 3. It says, But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is a side note, rabbit trail here. But this is just an amazing voice of the triune God and his involvement 
in our, in our salvation, right? Which he has done according to our God, God our Savior, the love of God our Savior, and his mercy he saved us through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out. So God purposed it, the Holy Spirit regenerated us, and it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are saved. What a wonderful picture of our triune God and the way he saves us, right? So anyway, back on track here. So through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, that having been justified by his grace, we are justified by none other, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right? So what is that? What we just read. Is that an imperative mood or an indicative mood? It's what God has done for us, correct? All that thing, all, do, do we have any action in that? That's the indicative mood. That's what God has done. And because of that indicative, this is, it switches to the imperative mood now. What we are to do because of what God has done. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Okay? So as an, out of an expression of what God has done for us, we then turn and begin to follow the commandments, what the commands given to us in Scripture. These things are good and profitable men. You want to witness to your neighbor? Do good works. Stir, love, stir yourself up for love and good works, or help others to do the same. So, not forsaking the assembly of, our, of the church is the last point. And it just comes down to the bottom there. In order to stir up one another for love and good works, we're going to have to be around one another. Right? We can't forsake the assembly. Uh, the command is not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Not because the checkbox needs to be checked that I've gone to church this week, but because of what Christ has done for us. He wants us to meet and assemble so we can stir one another up for love and good works. And we can't do that without meeting together. And I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here. Right? But that's why it's important to, to meet uh, it's just so we can stir one another up. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, right? Um, things are getting kind of bad. I think it's quickly becoming, not becoming a, a, a fad or something pop to be good to be a Christian in the United States anymore. We might suffer persecution, much like these people that were beginning to experience persecution for their belief in Christ. Right? Are we going to start now and start beholding our high priest and looking unto him and uh, seeking him? And, see, and uh, uh, just reflecting what he's done for us now, and so we can grow our roots deep and strong before persecution comes, right? Or are we going to just wait, right? And then we'll be facing the same difficult circumstance these people are doing. All right. So, exhorting one another, what does that mean? It's to encourage, comfort, warn, strengthen one another, right? This... This is kind of uncomfortable. This means that not only are we going to meet together, but we, we kind of have to get to know each other and become friends. And I have to let you into my life, Frank. Right? I have, to, I have to tell you the things I'm struggling with so you can comfort me and you can encourage me or you can warn me. Hey, you know that this is a weakness of yours. Why are you doing this? Right? It's uncomfortable, but that's what God has designed for His church. We need to do it for one another. We need to have, be unified in these things. And it happens only when we meet together and we just become friends and we try to love one another, right? This stuff naturally begins to happen, but we have to be willing to accept it. So, unity's antithesis, antithesis, I should say, 
is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. So there's a severe warning here. It says, Brethren, beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So what happens when we don't strenuously try to meet together and to stir one another up or to gaze at the, our great high priest? What if we just are set adrift? We drift away from God, don't we? And this is his warning. Look, you guys need to really focus on what God has done for you in, in the, church, the body of the church. Because if you don't, you'll, departing, you begin to depart from the living God. What are we supposed to do instead? But exhort, right? Comfort, encourage, warn, strengthen. One another daily. Why let's call today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I have to admit to you, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, I need other people in my life because I can be quick to point out your sin, but I'm very blind to my own, right? Sin is very deceitful. Right? If I think I have stopped sin in my life, squelched it out, oh, I'm good on that one. I'm, I no longer do that sin anymore. Guess what? My sinful nature just finds another way to express itself. And so I need to be around others that know me, that can exhort me, so they can see that sin in my life, and out of love come to me and help me rid that, right? Get rid of that. And so that's this community, this church that God, that Jesus Christ died for, and uh, is, our, is the high priest over. And that's the community that we desire to be, Lord willing. All right, so in conclusion, we consider Christ, as we consider Christ our high priest, let us draw near, focus our thoughts on Christ and what he's done for us. The indicatives, what God has done for us. Let us hold fast, right? The confession, so Christ is our hope. So we fix our hopes on Jesus, and we fix our eyes upon Jesus because he is our high priest. He is my hero. He did it for me. He lived a perfect, sinless life and died on the, sin, on the cross for my sin for me. And so we hold fast to that. And as I do that, may, as we do that, may we consider one another and stir up one another for love and good works. Here's a quote for, by William Coper that I thought was good to kind of conclude. To see the law by Christ fulfilled... And hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and a duty into a choice.